You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 16th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme... Imprisoned Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has died. We'll look back on his life and get the latest reaction from the Munich Security Conference. Senegal's top court rules the decision to postpone this month's election is against the constitution. Will this calm tensions in the normally stable democracy? Then we'll hear from the former president of Estonia on why faltering support for Ukraine is dangerous for Europe. We can easily do it. But the trouble is, of course, we lack decisions. And that's a huge problem. That, I mean, we can win this war. Plus, why embattled luxury retailer Farfetch's founder and CEO has had to stand down. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. We begin today's programme with some breaking news. In the past half hour, it's been announced that jailed Putin critic Alexei Navalny has died in prison, according to Russian officials. They claim that earlier today, in correctional colony number three, he felt unwell after a short walk and almost immediately lost consciousness. They claim the colony's medical workers arrived immediately. They claim all necessary resuscitation measures were carried out. Navalny leaves behind not only the hopes of Russia's opposition, but his wife Yulia, their daughter Dasha and son Zakhar. My colleague Andrew Muller looks back on his life. There are few higher risk 21st century occupations than making an enemy of Russian President Vladimir Putin. To cross Putin or the courtiers and henchmen who anticipate his whims is to invite a demise both tragically premature and grotesquely picturesque. It is characteristic of tyrants that merely possessing supreme power is not sufficient. They must also be able to demonstrate that they can exercise that omnipotence absolutely as they please and devil take anyone who seeks to impede them. These are people who are trying to steal my country and I'm strongly disagree with it. I'm not going to be, uh, you know, a kind of speechless person right now. I'm not going to keep silent. Alexei Anatolievich Navalny was born on June 4th, 1976 in Butin, a small town in the orbit of Moscow, and grew up further south in Obninsk. I'm 41 years old. It means that actually I'm a guy from the Soviet Union. I was a young pioneer. I had my red tie. My father was a military, and I was very proud that my father is guarding Mother Russia from evil Americans with their bombs and missiles. Actually, my biggest memory that I'm, as a child, standing in line maybe sometimes for hours to just buy milk. He studied law at the People's Friendship University of Russia in Moscow and later furthered his education at Yale University in the United States. Navalny became a national figure in Russia in his early 30s. He bought small shareholdings in various dodgy companies, of which Russia had no shortage, gained access to their accounts and posted his findings on a blog. Did these documents that you got prove corruption? Uh, Absolutely. I work as a whistleblower and I'm not afraid to uh, announce the names. 
Few Russians needed to be told that their country was being looted by unaccountable kleptocrats and or their enablers in government, but seeing the figures provided catharsis, if not justice. Navalny, who relayed his discoveries across social media with a dry wit, attracted a colossal online following. When he spoke in public, thousands turned out. In 2011, he founded the Anti-Corruption Foundation, an NGO dedicated to investigating malfeasance by public officials. Again, there wasn't a lack of material. And Mr. Putin puts his relatives, his closest friends, his colleagues from the KGB, as the chiefs of this company. And that's why they're controlling the whole economy. Inevitably, Russian authorities began taking an interest. Navalny was regularly arrested but chose to regard this thus far low-level harassment as essentially free advertising. In 2013, he ran for mayor of Moscow. And very possibly not coincidentally, was sentenced to five years on altogether dubious fraud charges. He was freed pending an appeal and came second in a six-candidate race with 27% of the vote, which, in the peculiar context of Russia, was read as a startling and heartening challenge to Putin's rarely resisted authority. Navalny, by now the closest thing Russia possessed to a leader of the opposition, took the obvious, if nevertheless chaotic, next step and in 2016 declared that he would seek Russia's presidency in 2018. During my campaign, I spent every fifth day in the jail. So now I'm kind of, you know, used to it. Nothing new for me. It's, it's became a routine of my life. The incumbent, or those acting on his behalf, stepped up their response accordingly. Navalny was repeatedly arrested, assaulted with a chemical agent which temporarily cost him the sight in one eye, and finally banned from standing. My uh, doctor in the hospital said, well, Alexei, you should be prepared that you will be blind for one eye. And so I even start to think about kind of, you know, I will be such kind of pirate with a, with a patch. There was another possible chemical attack while he was again in prison in 2019, this time serving 30 days for organizing an anti-government protest. In August 2020, the stakes were raised higher still. Navalny became suddenly extremely ill on a flight from Tomsk to Moscow. After the aircraft made an emergency landing in Omsk, Navalny was rushed to a local hospital from where he was airlifted to Berlin. He spent 26 days in a coma. Doctors confirmed that Navalny had been dosed with a nerve agent of the Novichok strain, a tactic previously deployed against the Kremlin's enemies at home and abroad to demonstrate both the Russian regime's ruthlessness and its total disinterest in what anyone may think of it. A farcical coda ensued when Navalny, sufficiently recovered, elicited an apparent confession from his putative assassin by calling him pretending to be a senior FSB officer seeking to establish what went wrong with the attempted hit. If Navalny's poisoners weren't trying to kill him, they certainly weren't trying not to. They may at least have assumed that Navalny had gotten the message that staying out of Russia might prove conducive to a longer life. Navalny had not. 
He returned to Moscow in January 2021 and was, as he doubtless anticipated, arrested. Once again, Navalny embraced imprisonment as an advertisement, picking this moment to release video of what he claimed was Putin's billion-dollar Black Sea Palace, a vast and ludicrous lair with its own skating rink and casino, among other expensive accoutrements, difficult to reconcile with a life on Russian government wages. We do a lot of work with the drones because for us it's a best way to show this way of life. When you publish this footage of the yachts, of these palaces, of this real estate, and you, uh, you can show documents, look, this guy have a relatively modest salary, but look at this house. Putin, as usual, denied everything, but tens of millions of Russians watched it. Navalny was tried on an assortment of charges that both he and his persecutors knew to be absurd, the absurdity being, as always, at least part of the point of the exercise, an assertion by those in charge that reality is what they declare it to be, that two plus two equals whatever they decide it does. Navalny, like many Russian dissidents before him, was exiled to a penal colony. And they have a lot of nicknames and euphemism for me, like uh, this gentleman, uh, this guy, this convict. But uh, they are thinking about me. And believe me, they are afraid of me, afraid of us. So it's, uh, that is much more important for us than mentioning my name. Alexei Navalny could not have expected to reach an advanced age. He was of that caste of activists who factor in the prospect that whatever progress they might make will benefit not themselves, but those who survive to further the path they cleared. Such is the only kind of opponent that Vladimir Putin's Russia invites, the kind who knows full well what they're up against and goes up against it anyway. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. Alexei Navalny who has died aged 47. Senegal's top court, the Constitutional Council, has annulled both President Macky Sall's decree and a contentious bill passed by Parliament, which attempted to move this month's elections to December. Opposition figures said it amounted to a constitutional coup and widespread protests have gripped the West African country, once considered a bastion of democracy in the region. President Saal has reiterated that he was not planning to run for office again, but his critics accused him of either trying to cling on to power or unfairly influencing whoever succeeds him. Tara O'Connor is founder and executive director of Africa Risk Consulting and joins me now from Nairobi. Uh, Tara, thank you very much for being on the show. Firstly, for anyone not au fait with Senegal's modern political history, how out of character have these events been? Well, you know, yes, I mean, we're in uncharted territory to to a large extent and totally unconstitutional territory for Senegal, um, you know, where where there has been a, a tradition of manipulation, attempted manipulation of the elections. I think um, the former president, Abdoulaye Wad, tried to extend his term in office. Um, but failed because of popular protest. But to actually cancel the elections and take the country into constitutional no-man's land is unprecedented. So why did the president actually want to do this then? 
Well, I think most commentators are actually are looking at again. He was trying to control the succession um, uh, to ensure. Uh, probably that that his uh, time in office is not scrutinized as he scrutinized his predecessors in office. So a little bit of tit for tat type of behavior. Um, but he was trying to ensure that his um, uh, Dauphin or his chosen prime minister, his prime minister, Amadou Ba, would be the main candidate to uh, succeed him. Um, and uh, to all accounts, Hamadou Baez is considered rather bland and not much of a an, an election campaigner. And so the fear was that he wouldn't actually even make it past a first round. And as the election got closer, it became very apparent that um, that he wouldn't make it past the 50, the requirement, get the 50, required 50 plus one vote in a first round, which would ensure the presidency, and he would certainly lose it in a second round. So was this delay of some 11 months an attempt to maybe find someone else or to improve the standing of his chosen successor? Well, I think it's now a question, I suspect it was to try and negotiate um, negotiate another successor, another, and there are, uh, and to renew um, the candidacy pool, uh, because there are both um, a locally very popular Usman Sonko, who would, who either he or his uh, deputy, um, a chap called Basiru Fai, and both of them tax tax inspectors who've accused uh, Sal of corruption. Um, they are, you know, they are popularly um, in the pole position to uh, to to win. But also, there is speculation that um, that Saul is trying to do a deal with the former president's son, Karim Wad. Sounds very complicated. Um, but Karim Wad has been in exile um, for the entire for the duration of Saul's time in office, and is was also looking to put his candidacy forward. Um, and so it looks as though uh, it looks as though that was the real reason to try and um, broker some sort of a a deal between the candidates so that the elections can go ahead. Mm. There are accusations of French influence. Are they valid at all? France has been very determinedly not commenting on this, not getting involved. All over social media, the very anti-French sentiment that has has grown up across West Africa, across what is known as the Frank Zone, um, is very prevalent in Senegal as well. And the very first days of the social media was rife with uh, with criticism that this is actually French intervention. But Macron had said that he would not get involved and has actually not commented and not intervened in any way. Um, I suspect there may be commentary behind the scenes, but this fits in with France's very determined uh, effort to transform its foreign policy towards West Africa, to modernise it and to break with the past um, where where the where Senegal and other Francophone West African countries were considered to be France's backyard for business and political influence. And what will happen now? Will the court's decision likely be accepted or could we see this delve into a bigger crisis with potentially the military stepping in? I don't think the military, firstly, I don't think the military will step in. Uh, you know, um, unlike in Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger, which have all suffered military interventions recently, 
Um, the, the Senegalese military has no history of this and has, um, it could be famous last words, of course, but there isn't a, a history of military rule at all in this country. But, but what I do think is now that we are in a, we're in a sort of, we've got two poles that will be fighting it out between each other, the presidency and the constitutional court. So we're in, again, as I say, we're in political no man's land. And I suspect um, the next steps will be negotiations. Uh, you know, the US has been very, um, for, you know, strong in 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 insisting that these elections go he go ahead within the constitutional timeline. So I think there will be a flurry of diplomatic um, uh, Western intervention, mainly from the US, um, but um, but also potentially regionally to try and get elections back on the road in double quick time and hopefully within the constitutional mandate. Uh, because soon, um, you know, once um, Macky Sall's actual mandate runs out we are really in the uh in the realms of uh, of a um a civil coup tara o'connor thank you now here's carlos arabello with the day's other news headlines Thanks, Vincent. The UK's opposition Labour Party has defeated the ruling Conservatives in two by-elections yesterday. The country is due to hold a general election later this year, which polling suggests Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's Conservative Party will lose. Greece has become the first Orthodox Christian country to legalise same-sex marriage after its parliament approved a landmark reform bill. Hundreds of people gathered on the streets of the capital Athens to celebrate. And India's main opposition Congress party says its bank accounts have been frozen months out from a general election. The party said the move relates to a dispute with the income tax department and called it a deep assault on India's democracy. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Vinny. Thank you, Carlotta. Well, world leaders have descended on Munich for this year's security conference, the leading forum for debating the most pressing international security issues. International broadcast correspondent Nina Dos Santos is there. And Nina, I expect there's a lot of reaction to that news about Alexei Navalny's demise. Absolutely, keeping everybody certainly on their toes, not least, because obviously this is the year uh, during which the um, Russian delegation has been banned from attending this particular conference. So you can imagine that discussions will be taken up um, later on in about a week's time when Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, will uh, see his counterparts from other countries on the fringes of the G20 meeting in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. But for now, um, there appears to be a sort of note of caution in the air among world leaders, not least because the chief of staff of Alexei Navalny's own anti-corruption organization has said that so far they don't yet have confirmation of whether or not um, the support coming from the Russian prison service about uh, Alexei Navalny's death, according to them, um, is indeed confirmed. So a note of caution definitely among world leaders, but you can imagine they will be asked about it on the fringes by journalists um, and not least the fact that we have big guests from the United States who've made a big deal about their concerns surrounding the fate, not just of Alexei Navalny, but also of other sort of political hostages in Russia, like, for instance, Vladimir Karamurza, and also the fate of the Wall Street Journal journalist Evan Gerskovitz as well. Well, Nina, turning now to the conference as a whole, uh, what are the big issues that they're looking to tackle this year? Obviously, uh, you know, the anniversary of Ukraine's war two years uh, next week. Is that still top billing there? What else is being heard? 
Absolutely. And what we're expecting is Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, to make another appearance here at the Munich Security Conference. As you remember, he famously did just on the eve of the onset of war back in February 2022, when he arrived here in Munich, despite the fact that there were some concerns that he might not be allowed back into his country if indeed Russia invaded. He's expected here on Saturday. Before uh, coming here, what he's going to be doing is meeting with the French president, Emmanuel Macron, in Paris. He'll have a whistle-stop tour of Berlin as well to make sure that he can sign defence agreements, both with France and Germany, hot on the heels of, of course, that really fraught debate to try and secure extra funding for Ukraine and uh, other parts of the world as well. Uh, in the United States Congress that has dominated the news agenda over the last couple of weeks. Yes, Zelensky will be a guest tomorrow, but ahead of that, we've also got Kamala Harris, the Vice President of the United States, uh, making a speech just in a couple of hours, or maybe one hour from now, actually, to be precise. And that's centered upon the position of the United States in the world. And this is keenly viewed here, particularly in Germany, where obviously the United States and its key role is in the defense apparatus in this part of Europe, with an increasingly belligerent Russia towards the east, um, is, is seen as absolutely crucial. As you know, the United States is a, an important part of the collective defense of NATO, and the question mark that we're seeing surrounding the fracturing, potentially, of NATO if there's a new and different administration in the United States is also that people want to hear you know, more about in terms of the direction of thinking from Kamala Harris. The other thing I would say is we are, of course, in an election year in the United States and indeed in the UK. By the way, David Cameron, uh, Lord Cameron, the new foreign secretary of the UK, is also here at the Munich Security Conference this year. And given the fact that there are elections going on in both of these two countries, um, this is an opportunity, particularly for Kamala Harris, to burnish her vice presidential credentials on the international stage, given the fact that there are so many concerns about the health and, you know, faculties of her boss, the president, Joe Biden, who's still the Democratic candidate for 2024, Vincent. Mm, and, you know, it's quite remarkable that someone who is being shortlisted as now a serious VP contender, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, said that Lord Cameron, the UK Foreign Secretary, could kiss her ass when it comes to Ukraine funding uh, earlier this week. So, I mean, all the signals coming out of the United States uh, of a potential return of Donald Trump, is it sort of shaking NATO members or are they accepting that there is a grain of truth that perhaps they have ignored that 2% target uh, of GDP spending on defence for too long now and been complacent about it? Well, the irony, of course, is that <clears throat> excuse me, that, uh, the, the person who's really steering the debate in this room is nowhere near Germany. In fact, he's back in the United States. And he's not even officially the Republican presidential candidate. You mentioned, of course, Donald Trump, who just earlier this week said that if NATO members... And he's picking up on a familiar refrain, by the way, that he started off on during his first uh, presidential term, um, that if NATO members aren't spending their a quota of 2% of their GDP on defence, well, you know, he wouldn't activate collective defence, which is the core, uh, you know, core raison d'etre of NATO. And indeed, he could even invite Russia to invade these countries. That really has shaken a lot of these countries to their core. In fact, the day started out earlier this morning with Kyriakos Mitsotakis, the Greek prime minister. Greece, by the way, is one of those countries that spends proportionally more than others on defence and meets its criteria amply. Um, he said, if you want to pre prepare, make sure that you can ensure that you have peace, you have to really start preparing for war. And even here in Germany, a country which has traditionally seen itself as very, very cautious on foreign policy, 
and uh, on talking about armaments and so on and so forth. In the past, Germany, of course, has embraced a more commercial approach towards countries like Russia, getting cheap gas from Russia in the past, you know, turning a blind eye on human rights abuses in China so that it can sell cars to the big market over there. All of that has changed in terms of foreign policy. And even Germany is talking about potentially bringing back national service. It's getting more and more confident selling armaments to places like Ukraine uh, to help make sure that that eastern front that is so vulnerable is well defended. Um, but as you were saying before, and this is just a point I want to pick up on, the German finance minister, Christian Lindler, was specifically asked by a Ukrainian journalist earlier today whether 2% of GDP on defense funding for Germany was enough. And he said, yes, from my perspective, it still is. So you note a note of caution when it comes to Germany on that 2% target, but other countries spending much more and a cry for them to do so, particularly from the Baltic countries as well, who are here in a big presence today. Nina Dos Santos, thank you very much. Well, also in Munich is Monocle's Andrew Muller and the Foreign Desk team speaking to various delegates, including Kirsty Karl Ulyde, former president of the Republic of Estonia. The small Baltic nation has been one of Ukraine's strongest backers since Russia invaded nearly two years ago and remains so even as European and American support wavers. Andrew asked the former president if Ukraine could have won the war already had the West provided more military and financial support. I wouldn't give names, but I've heard people telling, even in public panel discussions, for example, from America, that we've given them everything we could. And then you ask, do you know how much we have spent? And everybody says, yes, of course, it's 95-something billion altogether, Europe, America. Yes, of course, but our GDP is a 47 trillion. And in addition, of course, I mean... It's not only, I mean, the amounts, but we don't see even today from defense industry as if they are really, I mean, packed with orders. Estonian uh, army ordered some ammunition from Europe and to their astonishment, prices were at the level of pre-war and also the queues were not long, which means that even the capacity we have is not fully exploited and we haven't had that much fresh capacity. Now imagine if we spent annually 0.25, which the Estonian government has been calling everybody to do. That would mean that we would be spending two and a half times more than we are right now spending. And that would put us ahead of Russian spending, because right now Russians are spending twice as much as Ukraine can. And Ukraine is basically on our money. So that means that if we went two and a half times over, we would be forcing Russia to spend even more. But it is already spending 30% of budget. So we can easily do it. But the trouble is, of course, we lack decisions. And that's a huge problem. That, I mean, we can win this war. And If we don't, then Russia thinks that because Russia is convincing itself, and I believe by now already believes it, that it is fighting NATO in Ukraine. Mm. And if Russia thinks that it was fighting NATO in Ukraine and at least didn't lose, where will that leave all Europe? And I think that the German leadership actually is getting it. And if we look then German numbers, actually Germany has put quite a lot of money where its mouth has been. There are some big other countries who haven't done so. For example, I mean, French have been very clear that we need to help Ukrainians till the end. They've also been telling that Ukraine has the right to shoot objects which are in Russian territory if they are threatening them. So it's all very, I mean, fine and dandy. But then if you look at the real spending, 
I mean, then this is not coming up. And actually, I knew that our own French, German, other European military industry is quite angry with the fact that Europe has lighter zone even ahead of America on spending. Yet American defense uh, industry capacity is going up quicker, which means that we are sending good old European money somehow there to, I mean, produce stuff which we should actually be doing here in Europe. Um, there's another subject I, I did want to ask you about because I know you've been writing about it and thinking about it and dealing with it a lot, which is um, AI. You wrote a piece for Time magazine in November about the need for governments to get very much on the front foot in terms of regulating it. And it is almost always the case that technology is several paces ahead of attempts to uh, get it under some sort of control. Um, is there a big concern, do you think, that governments, perhaps especially governments less tech-savvy than Estonia's, which is, let's face it, pretty much all governments, are, are about to get blindsided by this in the same way that they did about social media, which they still haven't got a grip on, despite it having been a fact of life for a couple of decades now? Yeah, this is to a certain extent true, that from one side we are late, from the other side we try to overreach with our regulation. Because if you read GDPR or if you now read the proposed AI Act, which will hopefully be approved in April in European Parliament, it comes to some 800 pages or something. But in fact, what does it say is that if you instinctively act in a digital or technological realm, the way you know you are allowed to act in analog space, then you are safe. Can we just, I mean, once and forever decide that what applies in analog applies in digital? Never mind what is the technological level. Otherwise, every time there is a new invention, there will be, let's say, a general AI or intelligent AI, and we will again rush to put out another 800 pages, whereas it only takes basically probably three pages to say that what cannot be done using, I mean, analog means and uh, mechanical technologies cannot also be done in the digital space using AI tools. It's so simple if you come to think about it. And finally, our regulations do come to it. But the worst thing we can do is to say no technological development until we have sorted it legally. This is ridiculous. Chinese will do it, Russians will do it if they can together with Chinese. I mean, this is not the way to go. Kirsty Karl-Ulaid, former president of Estonia, speaking to Andrew Muller there. Finally today, the South London jazz-funk group Samande never expected to hear their music again after breaking up in 1975. In fact, their bass lines lived on through samples on tracks by De La Soul, Grandmaster Flash and the Fugees. A new documentary out today, Getting It Back, the story of Samande, details the rise of the group in 1970s London as well as the black British experience of the time. Monocle's Robert Bound met guitarist Patrick Patterson and bassist Steve Scipio. Back in the days, people came out to party. Once you put that on, boom, lights out. You don't want nothing else. You ain't needing nothing else. Just put that joint on. I had discovered this new kind of music and I wanted to turn my friends on to it. 
Patrick and Steve from Simande are with me in the studio. I won't say the heart and soul of Simande, but at least two founding cornerstones of the band. Gentlemen, I know you're doing you're doing the rounds at the moment in a wonderful way. We feel very lucky to have you. You're in between. I, I gathered as you walked into the into the studio that you're cutting a new record as well. How's that going in between talking about the rest of your career as as you've been doing at the moment? Last week we spent recording in the studio at Rack Studio. Yeah. It's been going extremely well. We've cut basic rhythm tracks for five songs. Nice. Um, so we are ahead of schedule because we were expecting to only do three, but we managed to do five. So it's been great. So you kind of, and does it, does it feel like you're clicking back into... Oh, we, 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 we started clicking back long before you went into the studio. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, because we've been, uh, we've been actively touring yeah. since about 2016. Yeah, but it's really this year because of the refresh, or, or should I say, renewed interest in the yeah. band. There's been a lot of um, activity in terms of invitation for gigs, and, yeah, I'm and, sure, and right. and festivals, etc. So we're going to be extremely busy. How's it felt looking at yourself, kind of looking at yourselves in the mirror and looking at your the kind of long story of your long career through the prism of this film? That is obviously the reason that we have you in the studio at the moment. It's kind of light and shade in that film, aren't there? There's some wonderful moments, musical moments. Obviously, there's a lot of camaraderie between you guys in the group. And there's some tough times as well. Looking down the other end of the telescope, what's it been like? Well, it's nice to have the opportunity to reflect Mm. on stuff that has gone by. And, you know, what's important is that we consider it a sort of a legacy project. So it's it's felt great doing that. We've had a, a view about the if you like, the significance of Simande in terms of British black music and mm. how it's gone with the band where we might have expected it to go one way and it kind of didn't exactly fulfill those expectations. But having had the opportunity to do this project with Tim has been really wonderful. Inspiring, in a way, also. It's obviously strange, but great. It's wonderful to have all that footage of you guys as young geezers in Brixton and Ballam plying your early trade and stuff like that. I mean, it's great to have great to have all that stuff on record, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, we lost a lot of footage. Um, uh, first of all, we <laughs> have to uh, give Tim a lot of credit for the research yeah. and archive digging that he, he underwent to, to retrieve all that stuff. I mean, it, it was... It it was as informative for us as it as it was for you know people outside of the band who was viewing that uh, that documentary, but a lot of footage was also lost you know um, of our tour mm. in the U.S. in particular. We did some television shows in the in the U.S., but we weren't able to retrieve those uh, those footage. So the the few that we have on the documentary sort of gold dust yeah exactly. yeah right exactly that, that, well, I mean let's, that's let's, a good word I'd love to it. come back to that US tour but I'd love to start a bit closer to the beginning of Simande and your first LP and putting that together now that sounds unlike anything that kind of came before it and I wanted to I was thinking I was thinking listening back to that in preparation to knowing, knowing I was going to meet you guys where did the sound where did the influences in the sound for that first self-titled Simande LP come from because a lot of things came after it sounded like it and used bits of it famously samples and things but what about putting that thing together where did the where, what were the roots of that it might be said that there are three roots first of all we had a band Steve and I mm. before we did Simande which was called Mita where we were going on a, a, a 
if you like, a musical adventure to explore time signatures, hence the, the name. And that band worked together uh, for about, I don't know, three years or so. When the drummer decided to leave, that's uh, when we closed the door mm -hmm. on that. But me, just one aspect of it. Secondly, there would be our influences, musical influences, jazz and soul and um, a little... Caribbean and African stuff. There's a little sort before. of Augustus Pablo kind of spiritual stuff in there somehow. Well, he might have been our contemporary. Yeah, but, I think he was your contemporary, yeah. But um, reggae, reggae music was not really our forte. Yeah. Uh, our influences came from other sources. Yeah. I mean, we, Mita did a lot of jazz. That was our focus. And the third area, if you like, of uh, operation might be just how John, how we worked with John Schroeder. Mm hmm because John was very important in the creation of the sound, quite apart from loving the, the music, you know. He had a, a conception about what we should sound like, which was really in tune with the type of music that we wanted to make. Spacious and, you know, yeah. impactful kind of thing at the same time. So I, I would identify those three. There are many more that I could talk about. <laughs> but I'd identify those three as being significant in terms of the creation of Simandi's music. Yeah. And, and, and I think also important to the creation of the music, obviously, is the fact that we set out for our music to be original. That was Robert Bound speaking with Steve Scipio and Patrick Patterson. Getting It Back, the story of Simonday, is out today and you can also catch the group back out on tour. And that's it for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Tom Webb. Our researcher was Neoma Aikwe and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.